Thank you, Mr. Ames, and greetings to all of you. Very good to be here again, and we have almost a hundred people here today, in spite of the fact we have still some people gone on vacation. I know uh, two of my sons and Steve Stifler are over in uh, Nashville today. They're having a kind of a young people's, I think it's a dance and some kind of gathering over there. Maybe others are over there as well. So we'll get more of us back, I'm sure, in a few weeks. Welcome to any guests who may be here, and I certainly hope we can meet you. I don't see anyone, but uh, there may be some that I'm not aware of here today, so my wife and I always enjoy visiting with anyone who's new. Brethren, I think as we know, and I hope we really continue to think on this and realize it, God is using this church and this work more and more, and it is good that we grasp what God is doing. We're not doing this of and by ourselves at all. We cannot. But God is doing this, and we're very grateful for that. Yet, brethren, we are a very tiny church, as you all know. And sometimes it seems, you know, we're so tiny, how can we do anything? We have only about 7,000 members, we say, but we mean by that attendees, including little children. Very, very tiny. And we have a very tiny leadership. Very few of us are, let's say, involved in the ministry of this work. And the leadership, when you think about the big group we had at Worldwide, and of course the big group, the Mormons and the Adventists, and of course the major denominations were practically non-existent. And we've lost some wonderful leaders even in the last year and a half or so, Mr. Carl McNair and Mr. Randy Gregory, Mr. John O'Gwen and others. And of course that's a tragedy. And so it looks like, humanly, that we're hanging by a very slender thread. I think of that sometimes. I'm human too, you know. <laughs> I think we're hanging by a very slender thread. How can the great God use our little tiny church and our little tiny group of leaders and ministers and other staff here to reach six billion people on this earth? And yet God says He's going to do that through somebody and no one else is doing it in the same way we are. Some are trying, and I don't mean to put down their efforts, but most of you know the difference in what we're doing. And we're very grateful that God has guided us and helped us and given us the fire in our belly to do that and do it in a positive way, not just attacking others, but do that in a positive way and carrying out the message around the world. We're hanging by a slender thread. How can we reach six billion human beings out there? Brethren, back in the early 1950s, the work of God was just sort of getting going because all through the 30s and 40s, Mr. Armstrong would start churches, various churches around, uh, uh, you know, Sutherland, Oregon and, and uh, Roseburg and Yuma Pine and all these places you've heard him mention in his autobiography. And they would come apart because he had to work with ex-Adventists and ex-Pentecostal ministers and ex-this and this and that that were not loyal. And the church then would come apart and he was sort of, as he said, spinning his wheels. The work couldn't grow. So he decided to start Ambassador College and train, as the Apostle Paul did, younger men to help. And so he started the college, and the work did begin to grow. But even in the early 50s, it was very, very tiny. As I said, when I came to college in 1949, we had three churches. Eugene, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, Pasadena. That was it. Less than 100 people, and remember Mr. Armstrong started this work in 1934, and after 15 years, 
less than 100 people on the face of the earth after 15 years were meeting in the Radio Church of God, as we were called at that time. I know because I was there. I'm just telling you that. Then when I graduated in 1952, we still only had three churches on the face of the entire earth, Portland, Eugene, and Pasadena. By that time, we'd baptized some people, and so at that time, we had about 150 or 75 people, but still less than 200 people on the whole face of the earth meeting together. Others were getting ready to because we'd baptized them out in Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas, and we, we were able to start some churches. But when I graduated, we hadn't yet. As I've said, I had the privilege of raising up the first church as a result of the college, in San Diego, interestingly how God led us back there again after so many years. I didn't plan that. That just worked out. And secondly, I started the church up in the Seattle-Tacoma area, the second church. And we didn't move our headquarters up there and don't plan to, by the way. <laughs> but at any rate, then others started. I think Raymond Cole started a church down in Corpus Christi. I believe that was number three. And then others, maybe he raised up or I think Herman Hay actually went back there for Passover and kind of got the church started in Big Sand here. We called it Gladewater, Texas. And so we began to gradually have churches across the country. But it was very, very tiny. And at that time, my uncle, who wrote the old correspondence course that some of you older brethren have read or have still have copies of, kind of amuses me to tell people, well, I got all 42 lessons. Or I got all 48 lessons, or whatever they say. No, there were 58 lessons, if you get them all. <laughs> but at any rate, he wrote that, and uh, he was a pioneer student along with me in the early years of the college, yet he'd been to six other colleges, interestingly, and Ambassador College was the seventh college he'd attended in the course of getting his doctorate before and various other things. Ambassador was number seven, so he'd been around a while, and been president of the Veterinary Association for the state of Missouri, and he'd seen various things happening as an older man. He says, Rod, he said, this whole work is based upon the vocal cords of that man. I kind of disagreed with him in a certain sense, because I was a kid, you know, still pretty young, and I thought, well, what's he talking about? All of us are coming along. But as I look back, humanly speaking, he was right. Because young Rod Meredith and Herman Hay and some of us were not old enough to do very much at that time. And Mr. Armstrong had to coach the brethren. Quit calling them Herman and Rod. Call them Mr. Hay and Mr. Meredith just in honor of the office of the ministry. They finally had to get over calling us Herman and Rod and various names like that. The two Raymonds, we used to say, Raymond Cole and Raymond Manair, we call them the two Raymonds. And then later, of course, several years later, Ted Armstrong came along and others, Dick Armstrong. But at any rate... Uh, we were very weak. And Mr. Armstrong sensed the fact that as far as the actual impact of the work, it was all hanging on the two vocal cords or the vocal cords of this one man. If something happened to him, there wouldn't have been much of a work. Who was going to listen, you know, and so on. And that was in a sense true. We were very tiny and God guided things nevertheless. So uh, we had no experience leadership then except Mr. Armstrong, as I've said, and... Uh, some of us had just barely graduated, and uh, Ted Armstrong hadn't even come along yet. He was still in college and was not broadcasting. No other leader was around. But Herbert W. Armstrong, one man, had come into a dead era of the church, the Sardis era, as we call it. But even before that, he had dug out through tremendous effort, 
and zeal. And I got to know that man through thousands of hours spent with him, and he did have an awful lot of zeal and mental and physical energy. And boy, he would go and go and go and go. And I know I watched him some and how he did that. And he, he just dug and dug to get the truth and, and went over and over certain things to get them straight. And he got them all straight and kind of handed most of the truth to us on a silver platter. And most of our brethren don't fully appreciate that fact. Different groups have started here and there as break-offs from Mr. Armstrong, and they hardly mention his name. Yet they would not have remotely started to begin to commence to have the truth they have except for that man and what God did through that man. But Mr. Armstrong, as I got to see through the years by personal experience, and I would encourage all of you very, very much, if you can find a copy, to get his autobiography and read it. Get the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong. It is a tremendous lesson in faith and courage and reversity. A tremendous lesson. And he wasn't just bragging. I came to Ambassador College to check up on Mr. Armstrong, as I've explained. And he laughed later. He said, I knew, Rod, you were going all over asking about me. <laughs> and he said, that was okay. I didn't have anything to hide. And uh, Mrs. Armstrong told me one time, she says, Herbert has lots of faults, but he's not a hypocrite. Whatever he says comes right out of his mouth. And that's true. If she didn't kiss him that morning, he'd tell some of us about it in a sense. And everything was, he was so open about everything, perhaps too open, but very open and so on. And was very sincere and very heartfelt. But he had tremendous faith, all kinds of setbacks, all kinds of trials, but he had remarkable faith that there is a real God, that the God of the Bible is a great spirit personality. And as you read the, let's say the, what is it, Carolina Living section of our local paper, you'll see these religion editors talking about these different churches. And as you read those articles, you can very quickly figure out most of those people don't believe in the, even the kind of God that we do. They just think that God is sort of there maybe or he's a first force or he's somehow that inspired people and went way off or he wants us to be sentimental. They don't begin to grasp that real God that really did inspire the Bible and really does back up the words of the Bible. Mr. Armstrong knew otherwise. And he based this work on that as well, of course, as on Luke 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And once he had proved that word of God and the existence of that great God, then from then on, certainly he added points of knowledge and understanding. But through all those years of trial and trial and people stabbing him in the back, turning aside, everything, on and on and on, he had to have faith and courage over and over again. I remember sitting in the freshman Bible class and in the early forums of Ambassador College back in 1949, 50, 51, and 52. And he had the faculty sit in on some of those classes. He wanted them to at least understand what the work was about. Boy, they resented that. There's only one converted faculty member beside him when I came, and that was Mr. Jack Elliott. The rest of them were totally carnal. And Dr. Holly Otis Taylor had taught at Harvard University and was an esteemed scientist, and he was the head of the science department and so on, and then the dean of the college, and a Mr. Walker, no relation to Leon Walker, was there, and uh, later ran off with Ella May Cole and had to be kicked out, 
and uh, all kinds of, led deserted his wife to do that, by the way, and all kinds of other things went on like this back in those early days. And those faculty members were chuckling and kind of smirking at Mr. Armstrong, and here he was all alone. And they kept saying, when this thing folds up, this was a very common expression, brethren, back in the early 50s, when this thing folds up. Because those faculty members, some of them at the time I got there, had lived through the winter of 1947-48, or I should say 48 and 49, when there wasn't enough money and the college had to go on half time. And if you see the early catalog and it talks about Dr. So-and-so and and the different ones who taught over in uh, Hollywood uh, speech and television broadcasting and radio broadcasting and various other disciplines, they were not there anymore. Very few of the faculty members remained, these outside faculty members, because they were put on half salary and had to agree to teach just three days a week for half salary. Of course, most of them didn't put up with that. It looked kind of thin when this thing folds up. And yet here was this man who would get in that little room compared to our room here, maybe one-sixth or eighth the size where we had our forums back there, just one of the classrooms and what we call the library later, and thundering at us, this is the work of the great God. And God is going to guide us and empower us and do this and do that. And I thought, wow, I hope so. <laughs> but he did. And pretty soon, the sun never set on the work of God. And we had beautiful offices, which I've seen in Great Britain and Australia and New Zealand and the Philippines and Germany and all around the world. And we were able to expand to where we were. Still, we're very small, of course. We were still the little flock and nevertheless had 150,000 people and were the biggest single force on radio, radio religion on earth for a while even bigger than these other famous programs as far as the impact that it was having around the world. Where Time Magazine talked about how Herbert Armstrong thundered his message around the world and things like that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, if you would turn there with me, brethren. Verse 6. God says, but without faith, it is impossible, impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. You've got to know and know that you know that there is a great personal God. And that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that's described in the Bible, a a spirit personality who deals directly with mankind, intervenes in our lives in a very personal, continuous, profound way and guides the rise and fall of nations. He is God. And you've got to prove that to yourself. And that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And some of us, even in our church, no doubt many of you brethren here, and remember I'm not preaching just to you, I'm thinking about the brethren, and you folks down in Sydney and Brisbane and Perth and and, uh, Johannesburg and and, uh, Cape Town and all around the world who will be hearing this later on tape. We have many people, even in this era of the church, who are very weak. They're lukewarm. And God help us to approach God with zeal. We need zeal. But we have to have that underlying faith in God. And we must have faith to please Him. This work is built on that kind of attitude. And that is a tremendous thing. And we've got to understand that. He could never have gone through the trials and tests He did. 
Mr. Armstrong, without that kind of faith and courage. In 1948, they had the $30,000 headache, which is more like if we had a $300,000 or a $3 million headache today in terms of the size of the work back then and what the dollar was worth. And the college was going to close. And Mr. Armstrong was really upset. And some of you read it in his autobiography. I've read it, but I heard him say it a number of times. And I'm sure Mr. Parting has heard that and can testify to that. I've heard it two or three or five times in person. Twice during that year, he prayed to God. He said, God, let me die before he go to bed. He would be so worn out. All this going on, all these people, people leaving, people accusing him. Old Molly Annecy, the French and Spanish teacher, accusing him and saying, talking about the Heavenly Father and his son with the red chariot, meaning Mr. Armstrong and Nick Armstrong had the red chariot. He had a little Plymouth convertible, not a Cadillac, not a Mercedes, a Plymouth. And so this guy made fun of him and made fun of Mr. Armstrong. Talk about Armstrong extravagance. It wasn't very much extravagance at all. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. Lots of my friends had cars like that. But this guy tried to attack Mr. Armstrong. I got kicked out of Spanish class once because uh, I upheld Mr. Armstrong. And he was taking off on Mr. Armstrong. And I just interrupted him. I said, Mr. Annecy, you can't do that in this college. This is God's college and the president is right upstairs and let's not talk about him. Well, you get out of here. And I'm going to tell him. I said, that's fine. I hope you will tell Mr. Armstrong. I'm going to tell Mr. Armstrong too. And I did. I went right up and knocked on the door and yes, sir. And I, we t- I told him what was up. Well, he said, we've got to put up with these people, Rod. He says, they, they're not converted and, and they're just carnal men, but we've got to have their experience and their degrees. So I had to take it. And that's the only B I made that year. I think I made all A's except for uh, my Spanish grade. I think it was a B minus or something like that because I wasn't putting up with Molly Annecy. But at any rate, he went through a very difficult time and prayed twice that God would take his life, and the next morning, then he would repent, as he said, and say, please forgive me, and I've got to get going. And he'd start going again. And yet it looked like everything was going wrong. In 1958, he had longed for a son so long, and finally, ten years after his youngest daughter was born, finally he had a son, Richard David Armstrong, and that son died in this terrible automobile accident, it was not Dick's fault. He was not driving. It was not the other man's fault either, really. It was in the morning. No drinking involved. Nothing. Just the state of California was involved. I've told you that story before, the way they had the misplaced signs. But, again, Mr. Armstrong was really profoundly hurt. And I happened to be with him in the little penthouse over the library when the call came in from this man who'd been driving, who was crying and shaking, and that man himself, I think, had his collarbone and one of his arms was broken and said, Mr. Armstrong, I'm so sorry. I'm just calling you from the hospital. Dick, is, his whole body's crushed, and they're not sure he'll live. And I was right there, and Mr. Armstrong said, says, Dick has been a terrible, and then the other man was talking on. I was sitting right across from him, about five feet in front of him, and I saw his reaction, and I could see how he was going to do it. He said, I knew how terribly it hurt him because I knew how much he loved Dick. But he thought real quick, even while I was sitting there, he tried to call and get and rent a uh, lease a plane so he could fly up to San Luis Obispo. And he found it was going to take hours and all kinds of proof of money. And we were so small. He finally decided, he said, uh, you know, Ted was back in Springfield in the campaign and Herman was off somewhere. And, uh, and, uh, 
Norman Smith was a very uh, dedicated, thoughtful person, a good driver. I don't think he thought I was a bad driver. We, he didn't really know much how we drove, but he knew Norman was very steady. He said, I'm going to have Norman drive me up there. He says, I'm not fit to drive. It's a long drive. So he drove Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong. He said, Rod, you stay, care, stay here and you kind of take care of things and you run the day-by-day work. For the next few days, I'm going to have to be up there. Later, Mr. Armstrong made me second vice president of the whole work that autumn after Dick died. But he said, call me if there's an emergency. But he sensed he was going to have to be there for a while, and he was, a whole week. And finally, as they were transporting Dick's body down to UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles, he died as they were transferring his body from the, from the ambulance into the hospital right at that point. But Mr. Armstrong said, look, Rod, he said, we're going to have to carry on. I remember that that statement just looking at me right there as the thing was happening. We're going to have to carry on. And all during all those trials that I even went through with him, I could see a man never wavered. He never got scared. Oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. We can't do it. He had faith and courage because he knew God was there. God will take care of it. Then later, nine years later, his wife of 50 years died. And boy, she was a rock in helping him constantly, constantly. And she died. And just as she was dying, she told us, as I've told you before, he said, you men finish the work. I'll be all right. She said that. You men finish the work. I'll be all right. And she had a lot of faith and courage, too, and it helped him so much in building the work. But she was gone, and then he had to carry on without her. What was the slender thread upholding Herbert W. Armstrong? Turn with me back to Matthew 16, and that's the same slender thread upholding us, by the way, as I'm sure you can figure out, as you can surmise. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 18. They'd ask, Jesus would ask them, who do men say that I am? And they gave various things. And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so in verse 18, Jesus said, and I say to you that you, Peter, are, uh, that you are Peter. And the Greek word there is Petros, meaning a small rock or a pebble. And on this rock, a different Greek word, P-E-T-R-A, the larger form, which often means a whole rock mountain, on this Petra, this massive rock, this foundation rock, I will build my church. That's the real foundation. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he used the Greek word Hades, meaning the grave. Nothing can stamp out the work of God Nothing can stamp out the church of God. Trials, tests, financial catastrophes, outside persecution, it doesn't make any difference. As long as we walk with God and do God's work, we will make mistakes. Yes, as Mr. Armstrong did, as even David did. Mr. Davis was talking about David, and David made his own mistakes. Man, they kind of got upset at him after the problem with Bathsheba. And then, of course, he, you know, said, don't touch the young man. 
his son who betrayed him and was trying to tear Israel apart and Joab killed him. And then David went in the morning and finally Joab said, look, this day ahead is going to be the worst day of your life if you don't go out and comfort your men because it looks like you love, you know, this guy more than you, Absalom, more than you love all of us put together. And David made other mistakes in his life. He was very human. But God continued to use him because his heart was right and because he had faith and trust in God over and over and over again. As the sermonette just indicated, he knew God would take care of things and God did take care of things. On this rock, I will build my church, not somebody else's church, God's church. And the gates of the, of the grave shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And in the Jewish terminology, the commentaries tell you, if they spell it out, which the number of them do, that was talking about the basic truths, the basic truths, the way to get into God's kingdom. And that's what he gave Peter, not something mysterious. And later, as you know, in, Acts, or in uh, Matthew 18, he extended that to all the apostles. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven to make binding decisions. And we in God's church need to do that from time to time in relation to doctrines and certain principles, certain traditions of the church. One of the first ones I remember Mr. Armstrong making was about smoking. The Bible does not say thou shalt not smoke. But when Mr. Armstrong began to look into it way before most people got into it, he began to realize and read these articles and talked to some of us about it. There's not one bit of good that comes out of smoking. It's all negative. Now, there's a little bit of good that comes out of, for instance, wine. If you drink a little bit of wine, it can aid your digestion. It can help you. And there's certain enzymes and things in wine. And, of course, it has a natural antibiotic. Dr. Hay and Dr. Erlander and others in traveling to Eastern Europe and the Middle East used to drink a glass of wine at noon and another glass of red wine, not white at night, so they wouldn't get... Uh, Pharaoh's revenge and all these other, all these other stomach problems over there, and it usually kept them pure because it would kill the disease. You see, it's a good thing. Paul told Timothy, "Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake." You see, that's fine. A little wine, some good. Then beyond that is bad, but no good in smoking. So he decided, as a church principle, not some great law of God in the sense of equal to the Ten Commandments at all, but it's a tradition of the church that we're not to smoke. We have other traditions in the church like that. And we can make binding and loosing decisions about uh, disfellowshipping people or suspending people or things like that. And God tells us to do that. And we are responsible. If people are being divisive in the way that they talk and the way they act, hurting people, tearing them down. You read back in uh, Titus, you know, and it tells you about that. That it says here back in the book of Titus, for instance, I think we're so used to Romans, that we just use that one the most, uh, Romans sixteen seventeen. whoever causes division, put them out. But also there's a different scripture along that line back in the book of Titus that people often overlook and that is very, very important as well. And he says in verse uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 9, avoid foolish disputes. See, people who are constantly arguing, well, I don't know, and he said this and this and that, and they go on and on causing disputes genealogies, contentions, you see, arguing and strivings about the law for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. 
If you've warned him a couple times, he still causes division by his talk and his actions, then reject him. That means put him out, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned by his own actions. So God gives us instruction a number of times. Of course, we've had whole articles on that, that we are to have binding decisions in the church of God. Once again, it describes a real church that's functioning, not all kinds of scattered people, each man starting his own church here and there, and someone leaves God's church or has to be put out, they run down the corner and start some other church, and they have no government, no submission to any authority. They do their own thing. That's exactly contrary to the whole way of God, brethren, when you understand it. You don't find that pattern in the Bible at all. Can God trust those people and put them into His kingdom and know forever that they're going to be loyal if they have that kind of attitude? Of course He can't. He cannot trust such people as that. So he says, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he was going to have to suffer and be killed and be raised the third day, or as it is in Matthew twelve forty, after three days and nights. Then Peter wanted to always be protective, but he was still carnal, you know, and wanted to beat someone up. He was a big guy, apparently. He took him aside and said, that's not going to happen to you. I'm going to beat them up. I'll, I'll knock their head off. See, he says, I won't let this happen. But Jesus t- said Peter to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Wow, he rebuked him strongly. He used the word adversary, which they translate Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So we've got to have God's mind in these things. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, you want to be Christ's disciple, let him deny himself. You know, we always want our own way, each of us. Some of us who worked in the work for years had to do without in the early days. Some of us had to work with Mr. Armstrong when he would sometimes correct us and sometimes we got corrected or sent way off when the reason was not really good. But he didn't understand. He was old. He was taken advantage of. And we had to trust God anyhow. And God always worked it out. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life. Some people say, I just want to stay in this job or I want to stay in this house or I want to stay in this particular church area. And if anyone ever asks me to move, I'm going to get all mad and do my own thing. No, that's not God's way. That has never been God's way. What if the Apostle Paul said, God, if you don't let me stay in this nice place, wherever it was, some beautiful Mediterranean port, I'm going to leave the church. (laughs) What if Christ had said, look, Paul, you're going to have to travel here and travel there and be all night hanging on to a plank in the middle of the sea, not knowing whether you'll live or die. You're going to be beaten five times by the Jews with lashes, innumerable times by the Gentiles until blood is running down your back, and you're going to have to suffer. And at the end of all that suffering, you're going to have to go out some morning and lay your head on the chopping block and they'll chop your head off. What if Paul had known that or sensed that? I think, brethren, Paul did sense that. If you read his letters, he did sense that. And he obeyed God, trusted God anyway. He had tremendous loyalty to Jesus Christ and tremendous faith and courage perhaps beyond any of us in this age. And I'm sure Mr. Armstrong would agree with that. But 
Jesus said, if you follow him, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ. For whoever desires to save his life, to live a nice, comfortable life and just do what he wanted to do and keep his nice home in a nice place and never have to change, never have to move around, never have to do anything. Whoever desires that shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, being willing to go here, go there, do without, whatever it is, will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works, according to what he does. How much does he build the work of God? How much does he help other people? What's the real impact of his life? Is it unifying? Is it building up? Or is it selfish and vain and tearing down? Christ will reward each one according to his works. How much has he been willing to sacrifice? How much has he been willing to give of himself? How much has he been willing to go through trials and tests with faith and courage over and over and over again? as Mr. Armstrong had to do, and certainly the Apostle Paul had to do, because of this tremendous confidence and faith in Christ. And that's part of, of course, the foundation that we have, that kind of attitude. Uh, Turn now to Matthew 28, if you would. Matthew chapter 28, and this is something all of you are familiar with, but I want to read this to you nevertheless. In verse 18, Jesus came after his resurrection and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, not some things, all things. The Sardis people said, Well, you know, we, we know these holy days are probably right, but we don't want to upset too many of our brethren, so we can't believe that. We can't practice that, they told Mr. Armstrong, and they wouldn't do that. We're to believe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ will be with us. And if we have that faith and that courage to charge on, to trust Christ, to put our lives in His hands, Not to give up, not to waver, but to know that he's there and live by that day by day and year by year. That's part of the tremendous foundation that we have. Another way of understanding that foundation is back in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, if you would turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, and let's begin reading here in verse 18. Verse 18. He's talking here about the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, Now through Christ we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. By one Holy Spirit we have access to God. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, you Gentiles, you see, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. All of us together, old and young, black and white, male and female, were all one in Christ. Having been built, notice, on the foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, all that history behind us, all that example behind us, and following that example that we ought to do, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. 
That's the big thing to remember. Our foundation is the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets of God. The whole way of life that they taught and the way of life they exemplified. And most of them lived most of the time, not perfectly. But that pattern is clearly given, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Are we hanging by a slender thread? It looks like it above us might be a slender thread if we don't have the mind of God. But if we have the mind of God, we can see that right under us is a tremendous rock. It's called the Rock of Israel, <laughs> a massive foundation. Petra, the Lord God of the armies of Israel. That is our foundation. And boy, we don't want to ever forget that. We must not forget that. And brethren, we are going to have terrible trials and tests ahead. Mr. Davis animated that. And I've told you that again and again. I don't want to frighten you and have you leave because of that. But you do need to understand. Not, don't be shaken by that. We're going to have trials much worse than we've already had. The Bible's full of it. At the very end of the age, we're starting into the great tribulation. And we'll have problems internally with people that are false ministers rising up and trying to pull people off after them. Brethren with hurt feelings over various grievances and so on and attacking one another and so on. We'll have also misunderstandings here and there. And outside, we're going to have people hating us, persecuting us. And you shall be hated of all name, all nations for my name's sake, Jesus told his disciples. As you know, they're in Matthew 24, verse 9. And as I've said, how can they hate us when they don't know about us? See, They're going to know about us. We're going on station after station. How can we do that? Because Christ is with us. And we've got to have confidence that he's going to guide us. Now, we can't just rush out and spend too much money beyond what we have. But we've got to go out to the edge sometimes, as Mr. Armstrong did, and have confidence that God is going to make up the difference. If he opens the door that looks very good and very right, we're going to try to go through that door. We're going to give of ourselves. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to put faith in God. And we're going to reach out there more and more until the whole world knows that the living church of God is alive. We're doing the work of God. We're preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. We're preaching the true name of Jesus Christ. We're preaching the end time prophecies in the Ezekiel warning powerfully, heartfeltly, even in danger of our lives. And we've got to do that, brethren, and have confidence that that invisible God is alive and he's going to be with us to the end. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says in Hebrews 13. And Jesus said, I will be with you. As we just read in Matthew 28, 20, I will be with you to the end of the age. He has been. He was with Mr. Armstrong all through those horrible trials in the 40s and 50s that all turned out well in the end. But boy, it looked bad at certain times. And I was there and I could feel it. He was hurt. Other people didn't like what he'd done. They didn't like all his decisions. Or they thought he was spending too much money. Or they thought he was too harsh. Or they thought we were doing this or that wrong. You know, and I've heard that over and over. I was there. I'm not trying to put him down. I'm just saying that that's the way people are. They couldn't see God in it. Many of them never did see it. And they won't see it, some of them, till the resurrection. Others around us may not see it until the resurrection or until they see some of these outsiders now and other religions outside here and, and certainly uh, in the world in general until 
they sense and see if God begins to open their minds the power of God in this work and these things we're saying coming about more and more and more they're going to begin to say wow maybe these people really are God's servants and we'd better listen (laughs) then they'll have a profound respect that they didn't have before but even if they don't we're going to go on because we're the church of the living God and Christ is the living head of the church and we're going to put our faith and trust in him. So I hope all of us can understand that and try with all our hearts to be that way. Back in 2 Kings, back in 2 Kings chapter 6, let's turn back there. Yes, Christ is our foundation, the, the great rock of Israel. And we have got to have the kind of absolute faith and trust in God that God's servants have always had, and that is part of that relationship we have with that rock. Back in first, uh, I'm sorry, back in Second Kings, if you would turn there, Second Kings, I turned past it here, chapter six. Second Kings, chapter six, and I'm going to break into the story. Of course, I can't read all these chapters. In verse uh, eight, here it says, "Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel." And this is talking here, of course, about Elisha and how Elisha trusted in God. And so the Syrians were fighting against Israel and he took counsel, the king of Syria, with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, "Uh, uh, beware that you don't pass this way for the Syrians are coming. So God's true prophet warned his people, Israel, what's going to happen. And then the king of Israel sent uh, someone and warned them about it. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria, verse uh, uh, 11, was troubled. He thought, what's going on? And he says, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? He thought one of his people was betraying him, was a spy. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your own bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is. And they sent over to Israel to get this man, God's prophet. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. Wow, can you imagine that? A whole army surrounding this little town. And his servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, and here again is God's servant and that faith and the Lord God of the armies of Israel. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'll tell you, brethren, when people outside are screaming, maybe even around our offices and throwing rocks at us, we're going to have to believe that. I'm going to have to believe that. You're going to have to believe that. And when we're plaster our faces across the local newspapers and they'll catch me or Mr. Ames or someone and pose it all, and they'll catch us kind of looking kind of mad or something. You know, the, the people, when they don't like you, they can do a good job on you real quick. You notice that, what they'll do on some politician if they don't like him. So they're going to catch us in every misstatement, every exaggeration, every anything that seems wrong, even whether it is wrong or not, and try to make us look bad. But at any any rate, we've got to know that those that are with us are more than those with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the eternal, the great God of Israel, opened the eyes of this young man, this servant. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. 
all around Elisha. That's where that that name came from, by the way, for the movie. Remember the chariots of fire? Very nice movie. They just kind of twisted the idea here. But like this runner, you know, had this trust in God and chariots of fire were with him. Kind of a nice title. I love that theme song all the way through that movie. A very clean movie. The chariots of fire. Here it is. The real chariots of fire. This young man looked and he began to see these glistening chariots. He, He must have I bet his heart was pounding. He thought, wow, what's going on? He didn't believe in that kind of a God. There's an invisible force that's going to be with us as we serve God. And that invisible force is something so far beyond the armies of Germany and Italy and France and any power that these false religious leaders can gather against us that there's not even any remote comparison. They can get atomic bombs. They can get hydrogen bombs. They can get certain kinds of nerve gases and threaten us with this and that and so on. As a church, it doesn't make any difference. They can shoot us into the furthest corner of the universe in some rocket. It doesn't make any difference because the furthest corner of the universe is kind of, as I said, the people say they've conquered this outer space. Well, here's the tip of my finger and they've conquered about this much right around the tip of my finger and outer space goes way, way on out which is the truth, as you understand how big the universe is. They haven't conquered outer space. They've just started to begin to get ready to commence to explore. And they're not going to get very far before Christ comes back again. No, God can bring us back from anywhere. It does not make any difference. And we want to understand that. You say, well, he's let some people die. Yes, he let a lot of people die all down through time. They're listed all the way through chapter 11 of Hebrews and all the way through the Bible. And that's sad. We don't like that. Hit me like a ton of bricks when God served John of Gwen died recently. I don't fully understand it. I don't fully understand why God let this vibrant young evangelist Stephen die. He was just starting out. A man full of faith and power, it says right there in the book of Acts. And the next thing you know, he's dead. Why? We don't know. We don't always know exactly God's purpose in all of that. No, not it shook us. It's helped me to be more stirred to do certain things, realizing John's not here. I can't call him. I can't get his help and do this and that. And I've got to learn from his life the best I can and go on. And perhaps it's helped a lot of you and a lot of you brethren around the world to focus on God more fully. Other lessons are no doubt going to come out of these these sufferings we go through. And we'll know them all later. But there is behind us an invisible force chariots of fire and so when the Syrians came down to him Elisha was not shaking (laughs) he thought what are these guys doing he saw these chariots of fire and the Syrians didn't see it they didn't understand what was going on and they came down and he said Elisha strike these people I pray with blindness and so God struck this whole army and you know the rest of the story God delivered him they were all embarrassed didn't know where to go He finally sent them to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said, Shall I kill them, my master? Shall I kill them? And Elisha said, No, don't kill them. Feed them and send them home. Send them home to mama. (laughs) You know, God didn't want to kill them all on that occasion. So he didn't. He sent them back home. And God showed his power. And in the end, he showed his love too at that particular occasion. Because the invisible force of the chariots of fire is with God's servants. And with us. Turn to Second Kings, if you would, at this point, brethren. Second Kings chapter 18 this time. Chapter 18. 
And I want to again read another story. The Bible is the mind of God. And we've got to learn to think like this book shows us. It's the revelation of the way the great God is and the way He does. Second Kings chapter 18. And let's break into the story here. I'd like to read it all, but verse 19. Here, of course, Sennacherib, the king of, of uh, uh, the, the uh, Syrians, was trying to come down and wipe out Israel. And uh, so, Rabshakeh, sent, he sent this, uh, he was distracted, but he sent his uh, emissary here to warn Israel. And he said to him, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You know, they can tell us, you people have this little old brick building over here. What do you think you are? We're just a tiny spot in the road compared to the whole city of Charlotte. And we're not even a very big spot in the road compared to the whole nation. Some of you have been to Vatican City. We don't even begin to start to commence to compare with what they have there. We're nothing. Just a grease spot. That's all we are. We're helpless. Except for the massive foundation the massive rock that's under us, the Lord God of the armies of Israel, who will never leave us, never forsake us. And we've got to realize that. And so they came down with this great army, and they said, what are you trusting in, you crazy guys? Haven't I been able to conquer all these other nations and their gods? And then he says in verse 25, I think it's good that we read this and think about it, this representative of the king who'd been coached on what to say, no doubt. Have I now come up without the Lord, without the eternal against this place to destroy it? The eternal said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Are these other religions later going to say, well, you people are all mixed up. You better wake up in time or we're going to have to torture you. And you're going to be going, wow, I don't know. I don't want to be tortured. Maybe they really are right. Here this king says, hasn't God sent me up? No, God did not send him up. And the people of Israel realized that, the faithful ones, but they could have been shaken by it. And then this Rabshakeh told these people on the wall, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? They're going to eat and drink their own waste. They're going to be starving to death. Wake up, you guys. Submit to the king of Assyria. But they kept silent, and they knew the king had told them to shut up. So he said, don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of of Assyria, make peace with me, and I'll give you wonderful land. And he went on and on about it. And so at verse 19, or chapter 19, it was so when Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, a symbol of deep distress, covered himself with sackcloth, and he went where? He didn't go into the house of Baal or to some bar to drink and forget his troubles. He went into the house of the eternal and he began to cry out to the God of Israel. And so he sent Eliakim and some of the elders to some of the elders to Isaiah the prophet. Here was a faithful prophet in Israel who had faith and trust in God also. And they said, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. It may be the eternal your God will hear the words of this pagan emperor here, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent, sent this emissary to reproach the living God. 
See, they knew what was going on. He was not just reproaching them. He was reproaching the God of Israel. And will reprove the words which the eternal your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant. We're tiny. We're weak. Please, Isaiah, pray for us that God will deliver us. And so the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said, Thus shall you say to the king, Do not be afraid of the words which you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Yes, they had blasphemed the God of Israel in talking that way. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So I want to take care of this guy. But they had to trust. It didn't look like that for a long time, perhaps weeks or months later. Later, Hezekiah received a letter from this bad emissary and read it. Notice in verse uh, 14, And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Eternal and spread it before the Eternal. Brethren, there are times like that you might take a letter like that or some something that really hurts you, scares you, some bill you can't pay and literally lay it out before God on your prayer bench or wherever you pray and say, God, here is this. I can't solve this. Please, eternal God of Israel, help me. Deliver me. This is what I've got. I, I don't know what to do about this. And that's what Hezekiah did and that's put in the Bible, which is the mind of God. So he read it. And he spread it out before the eternal in the temple. Then Hezekiah prayed to the eternal and said, O Lord God of hosts, the one who dwells between the cherubim, he pictured how great God was. You are God. You alone of all the kings of the earth. You've made the heaven and the earth. See, reminding yourself how great God is and how small we are because we're tiny. Incline your ear, O eternal, and hear. Open your eyes, O eternal, and see and hear what the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to reproach the living God. That's what those people are going to do later on to God as they try to reproach us. Verse 19, Now therefore, O eternal, our God, I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the eternal God. You alone help them to wake up And I pray that as we draw closer to God and humble ourselves and seek God more and more, God will begin to give us more deliverance. God will begin to give us more stations, more power. And also, if all of you pray with me, you brethren here, you brethren around the world, cry out to God together. Father, please give us the signs of the Spirit that we may heal the sick, discern spirits, cast out demons, perform miracles and signs and wonders. You say, well, you're not the 12 apostles. No, we're not. Who did those things? The 70 others beside the 12 apostles. Who also did those things? Stephen did. Philip did. Two young evangelists did things like that. Read it back in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. Yes. Not just the apostles because it's God doing those things. So we're not holding ourselves as the equal to the 12 apostles. We're not. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we've got to really fully more realize that more fully than we have, brethren. I do, you do. And then God will start to back us up and back us up and shut the mouths of these people so that at least they'll have to know in their heart the great God of heaven is behind this little church. The great God of heaven is behind this little tiny group of people. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the eternal God, you alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, 
that which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And then he gives this kind of a poetic message of what's going to happen to him and, and begins to describe it in that way. And finally, kind of getting to the end of the story here, verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel, a literal angel of God, went out, killed in the camp of the Assyrians, this vast army camped around, way outnumbering the armies of Israel. He went out and killed 185,000. And the later message, uh, one of the other books mentioned the choice soldiers. They were apparently top troops. 185,000 of them. The newspapers took off and the newscast a couple of days ago. We lost 14 men in Iraq, and that's terrible. We're sorry for them. But here, a much smaller nation and army way back then lost 185,000 choice troops. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Wow, what a sight. The God of Israel fought their battle. So Sennacherib, this king that had blasphemed God, who are you, you little Israelites? Where is your God? Who are you, you living church of God? You're not with the great mother church. You're not with all these people. You're a bunch of nuts. You're unpatriotic. You're saying you're about talking about a future kingdom and your kingdom's not coming and we're in charge now and we're going to tell you what to do. Your God is a crazy God. You're crazy. Wake up, they're going to tell us. And all kinds of things much worse than that. And then God is going to say, I'm going to deal with these people. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh, back his headquarters city of the kingdom of Assyria. Now it came to pass, God not only caused him to lose that battle, but notice he punished him personally for his arrogance against God in a horrible way. As he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his pagan god, that his sons at Ramelech and Sherezer struck him down. Two of his own sons turned on him and killed him. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Ezra Hayden, his son, reigned in his place. And Hezekiah lived on and was about to die. And God then gave him, as you know, this tremendous miracle and lived 15 more years. But that's another story. Yes, the God of Israel is God. There's nothing that can withstand him, nothing. And we've got to have that kind of understanding and that kind of faith that he will be with us. He will always deliver us in his way and time, never let us down. In 1978, God's servant, Herbert W. Armstrong, had suffered a massive heart attack a year earlier, was recuperating over in Tucson. And some of us went over there from time to time to see him. I was put over the church not too long after that. But that year I was uh, made dean of the college as we revived the college, which had been closed. And he was still very, very weak physically in 1978. And I remember he was just coming out to where he could begin to do things and knew that he'd been near death. And technically, as he said, was dead they thought his heart had stopped and somehow he'd made it back again. And he told me and whoever was with me, I can't remember, I'm not going to try to give their names, but I remember one or two, it might have been Mr. Pardon, it might have been Mr. Luker, someone else. 
He said, fellas, please pray that God will give me the physical and mental strength and energy and the faith and courage. I've never forgotten that. I thought, here is a man (laughs) that I had admired so much that had so much faith and courage already, but he had nearly died. He said, please pray that God will give me the physical and mental strength and energy and the faith and courage that I can come back and straighten out the church. The church has got off the track, he went on to say, and I'm paraphrasing now, but those are the other words he used almost word for word. And I'm going to try to put the church back on the track. Well, Mr. Armstrong did put the church back on the track overall on the surface, but underneath these same liberals were just waiting till he died, and then they quickly revived again. One great big tall guy was there, and he suddenly feigned illness when I was made director of the ministry and was supposedly home in bed, and, and uh, he was very short. He suddenly shrunk way down and had to stay in bed. <laughs> Everyone said he's sick and didn't appear for a while. And then finally, when the liberals took over again, suddenly he's towering over everybody, big, uh, you know, whatever. He got well real quick. They were waiting for their opportunity. But on the surface, Mr. Armstrong did his best to put the church back on the track. And it helped a lot of people. It probably helped a lot of you. And he, God gave him physical and mental strength and energy from 1978 to 1986. About seven and a half more years until January of uh, 86. And God let him do a lot during that time. Give me the faith and courage. Let's pray that way. Faith and courage to trust in the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And know that that God is alive. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That attitude and that great God is our foundation. We are not hanging by a slender thread. We can say, like Elisha did, Eternal, uh, open his eyes that he may see. (laughs) See, it's not a slender thread. We have a massive foundation under us. And if we'll do our part, we will never be overthrown. He will never leave us, never forsake us. We've got to be sure that we do our part. You say, well, we will make some mistakes. Yes, but our overall attitude has got to be right. We've got to grow in grace and in knowledge. And we have got to learn to have a depth of faith and courage beyond what many of us have had thus far. And these trials and tests may be there to test our faith, to strengthen us, to help us determine in our heart and mind, all right, Mr. Carl Manera is gone. We hate that. These people in Milwaukee are gone. We hate that. And Mr. Gregory is gone. We hate that. Mr. Gwynn is gone. We hate that. We don't like that. We're sorry. We will go on. We will finish the job. Like Churchill said during the darkest days of the Second World War, give us the tools and we will finish the job. And if God gives us the tools, if he opens doors before us, if he sends us the money, the resources can help us get the leadership and the people we need to do, which he will do if we do our part, we will finish the job. No one else is going to do it, frankly, that I can see. If they do, that's fine. Let's not be against them. Each other group, we can pray that God will guide them in their own way, but we have a special responsibility. 
And I think you understand that. Some of us were with Mr. Armstrong helping him build the work of God way back when. And we're the only ones still left. Mr. Apartheid and me and a few others of us that are able to have had that experience. We've got to finish that job in faith and courage and not give up and quit along the way. All right, let's turn to 1 Samuel now, if you would. Uh, 1 Samuel, and I want to read here. Maybe I turned right by it before. 1 Samuel, and let's turn to chapter 17. A lot of you know what I'm going to read here, but nevertheless, we want to really think about this profoundly. Go over this example every now and then, which we all should. 1 Samuel 17, it describes, of course, this massive giant Goliath threatening Israel. And in verse 8, he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel, Why have you come out against uh, to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. That was a big mistake. <laughs> there was one man in Israel about half his size, but about a hundred times or a million times more powerful that he didn't reckon on because that young man had faith and courage in the God of Israel that Goliath, of course, being blind, did not understand. And if he's able to fight with me, then, you know, uh, kill me, we'll be your servants. Otherwise, you'll serve us. And the Philistine said, notice, a bad thing he said here. He was in trouble. I defy the armies of Israel. People start attacking us. They better be careful what they say in the future. We need to realize that. Not be mad at them. Not be sarcastic toward them. They're blind. God has not called them yet. They don't understand. But they're going to say, you people following Mr. Meredith and Mr. Ames and these other, they, you don't understand and you're in this crazy British Israel thing that's been discredited. That's not historical. And you think you're going to become God and you're, you're blaspheming when you say that. And you're saying this and that. There's a bunch of crazy stuff. Wake up. Get out of that crazy outfit. They're not God's church. They may say it's the devil's church. If they say things like that, it'll be kind of like Goliath taunting the nation of Israel, brethren. You know what I mean? And God will not take kindly to that. And you read the book of Revelation and you can see what he's going to do to those kinds of people. It's awful. It's horrible. Beyond what you and I would probably do. Except when God starts punishing, he's going to pour out blood and guts such as you have never imagined. As you read about the trumpet plagues and the seven last plagues. Yes, he'll take care of it. He will take care of it. And he's not just the harsh God of the Old Testament. He who will do these things is who? He's the living Jesus Christ. It's poured out in the presence of Christ. Christ is the one through whom God has always dealt with human beings. The Lord God of the armies of Israel is the one who's going to pour out those plagues. He died for human beings. He loves human beings. He gave his life for all of us. But acting for the Father, he and the Father are one. When he spanks, he spanks hard. He's going to really shake people so their teeth rattle in a way they have never experienced before. And so he said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And of course, this great big Saul, who was already about seven or eight feet tall, head and shoulders above everyone else, he himself was scared to death because this guy was even bigger. Apparently, Goliath was, you know, 10 or 12 feet tall. 
And so they were dismayed and scared. And here David comes, as you know, his own brothers made fun of him. Who are you? You ain't smart. All that coming out to watch us fight. And it's what you wanted to come down for. So he had people in his own family kind of putting him down. But he talked with the others and heard what was going on. And so then he spoke to the men who stood by him. In verse 26, once he'd heard about this great giant taunting Israel, he said, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? What's going to be done for him? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And we want to think that way, brethren, in a certain sense. They're fighting the armies of God when they fight against the church of God. And God will take care of them in his time. And the people answered and so on and so forth. And so then David said to Saul in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight. And Saul said to David, You're not able. You're just a youth. He's a man of war. You're young. You don't know how to fight yet and so on. And then David said, I used to keep my father's sheep, a young boy out in the wilderness. Now, you know, I know, I think a lot of you read in the Sunday school classes, I used to do these pictures of little David like he's a six-year-old kid. No, he was not a six-year-old kid. He was probably 18 to 20 years old. A lot of commentaries knowing about how God guides things. He was probably about 20 years of age. But he was still not experienced as a warrior like, you know, maybe... Maybe Goliath was 28 or 32 and had been in war after war and David hadn't. But David was a fully grown young man. I think he was very strong for his size, but he wasn't real big. He was tremendously alert, though, tremendously skilled with what he had to do with and had awesome faith and courage in the God of Israel. He said, I've been out all alone at night under the stars, night after night, watching my father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. The lions there were not as big as the African lions, but I don't like to tangle alone with maybe a a staff or something. (laughs) I don't think most of us would want to have a big stick and be fighting some 90 or 120-pound wildcat. No way. They'd tear us to bits. But David had skill... And he had faith and courage. He wasn't afraid of anything. He'd handle these wild animals. And he says, This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied who? Not me. David took himself out of the picture. See, he put God in the picture. He has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me out of the paw of the lion and bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And boy, Saul saw the magnificent faith and courage of this vibrant young man. And he sensed, no doubt, this is from God. And he sent him on out, even though he was very young and very tiny compared to Saul, although of normal size, perhaps. And so the Philistine came to David in the valley out there. They're all watching on either side. In verse 43, and he said, Am I a dog, you young squirt, that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David. Blankety blank to you, you young smart aleck Jew. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth and feed you to the birds of the field and the beasts of the field. And David said then to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That's the whole key. They must not defy 
the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And those who do are going to be the ones in trouble. As Mr. Armstrong said, in the end, we win. Oh, we're going to go through troubles. We're going to go through trials and tests. Some of us will be beat up. Some of us will be put in jail. I know that. Won't be fun along the way, every day, every step of the way. Yet we'll always know that behind us is God. And every now and then He's going to show power. He's going to show healings. He's going to show deliverance in a wonderful way. And we'll say, wow, He's still there. <laughs> he's still there. He will never leave us nor forsake us. This day the Eternal will deliver you into my hand that all the earth may know at the end of verse 46 that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all the earth may know that the living church of God is God's church and God's servant and doing God's work. They will have to know that someday if we do our part, brethren, and humble ourselves and walk with God and put our faith and absolute trust in the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And so they came together And David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand, verse 49, in his bag and took out a stone and struck the Philistine in the forehead. And the stone sank in his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone against this great big heavily armored giant who had this great big spear, looked so much more impressive and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Well, as they say, you know the rest of the story. He got the guy's own sword and cut off his head and carried around his bloody head. They had some bloody times back there. David was all man. He wasn't afraid of blood. He wasn't afraid of fighting. But he was serving the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And he did not shrink. He did not fear. He did not quit. He kept right on because his, his cause was God's cause. And our cause is God's cause. Oh boy, are we going to have troubles. We will have tests. We will have persecution. But we will be serving the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And we've got to really have faith and trust in Him and believe in Him beyond what many of us have done and seek Him with our whole heart and read and read and reread these accounts to where they become real. Turn now back to Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, brethren... Chapter 10, and let's begin in verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Brethren, many of you have hung in. You brethren off in Perth, Australia, and you brethren around the world, and you brethren here. Many have hung in for decades. Don't give up. Don't let little trials and tests throw you. Keep your mind on the big picture, what the great God is doing. So don't cast away your confidence for you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Oh, I get ahead of myself. I want Christ to come tomorrow. (laughs) I can't wait for all these things to happen. So I sometimes get ahead of myself. God's timing is perfect. My timing is not perfect. So we have to wait. And we have to be patient. But these massive events are moving inexorably toward the end that God has said, just like the iceberg was slowly but surely moving toward the Titanic. And this society thinks they're the Titanic and they don't begin to realize they won't even exist anymore. 
in 50 years and probably much, much less than that. Some will be scared if I say 50 years. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> they won't even exist. It'll be a different society and Christ's feet will be on this earth. So we want to understand that. It's a different world that's coming. Nothing can stop it. But God's timing is perfect. You have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Yet a little while, he who is coming will come. He's going to come back to this earth. God in the person of Jesus as King of Kings. Now the just shall live by faith. I came into the truth as a very young kid, 19 years old. And I was able to deal with a man and be taught, instructed personally under a man who at that time was 57 years old, three years older than my father, but exemplified a type of faith and courage in that way that I'd never seen before. And I'm very grateful for that experience. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We must not draw back. Your faith is obviously not in me. Your faith is not in any of us ministers. Your faith is in the rock of Israel. Your faith is in this word and the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the vast universe. That's where your faith is, but you must not give up on that faith. But we are not of those who draw back to destruction or perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul, because the just shall live by faith. And by courage, let's do that.